been served. What to expect from court hearings? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Can we get serious now? Unfortunately, you won't have Vinaytana joining me today, but I have an exciting guest with me, and his name is Daniel Flynn. He is a very accomplished litigator, solicitor advocate for Garner and Hancock solicitors, who has been in practice for many years. And I thought it would be helpful to start with understanding what court hearings are. There are two types, aren't they? Criminal and civil. Would you elaborate on at least one of them? So there's, there's criminal proceedings where this, the Crown, the Queen, says that you've broken one of her laws and the state has decided that something needs to be done about it. Um, and then there's civil proceedings where you've got disagreement with somebody other than the Queen uh, and you want you can't come to an agreement, and you need someone to sort it out for you. Put it simply, you need a judge to tell you what to do. So either the crown sues you because you've been naughty, or two parties disagree on something. Yeah. Two two private parties, so to speak, or companies. I have found before this meeting, I had to go on Google. As of 2016, apparently Donald Trump has been involved in over 3,500 various court claims, which is quite an achievement. Before this, we tried to calculate how many court claims Daniel has done in his career, and I don't think you've reached 1,000 yet. I think I worked it out, and I did some very rough sums, and I think in the 11 years that I've been doing litigatory things... I don't think I've done 500 cases by any stretch yet. So I, I've got... So logically, if I keep going for the next 70 years, I should catch up with Donald Trump. That's an impressive record for him, I have to say. But anyway, let's move on. Let's not talk about Donald Trump. Well, I think Donald Trump's a kind of useful person to talk about in an illustration of what's wrong with some of the ways that people think about litigation. Because there's a view that it's something that you can do to make a point or to make a principle... And it's rare that that's a good idea. Ultimately, the courts have got quite limited powers. People think, like, if I go to court, then a judge will sort it out for me. And a judge will say, look, this is what everyone needs to do, and this is how they need to do it. And really, that's often not the case. A judge will say, I can order someone to pay you some money. In certain circumstances, I can order you to pay somebody else some money. And sometimes I can order, and you know, I can I can order slightly more technical things, but it's rare that I can, you know, say what's fair and what's right and sort everything out for you. It's it's not principles are very very expensive. I think is the point. So are you trying to say that it would be helpful to have a good reason to go to court? I mean, there's no such thing as a good reason to go to court. If you're going to court, then it's because you haven't been able to sort it out by agreement. You're therefore introducing risk, and you're introducing uncertainty. Sometimes. You can't agree because the other side is being silly, but like going to court is always a last resort, I think. Yes. Perhaps anger, emotional reasons are not good enough reasons to start proceedings. There are objectively good reasons to go to court. Perhaps you have, a, you have two contracting parties and you really can't agree who breached what part of a contract and you can't move any further as to who may compensate who, 
So you need somebody in the middle, somebody impartial to make a decision. Equally, uh, Daniel is well experienced in family law. The thing that we try and do in, in all jurisdictions, but in particular in the family proceedings, is to try and take the emotion out of it. Because it's such an easy thing for us to say in our offices that you know you need to think dispassionately and unemotively about this. But if relationships break down, there's going to be an emotional element. It's inevitable, and it's fair enough for all human beings. But the court, again, it's, it doesn't really have power to do anything about that. It's not really helpful or possible for the court to say this person's you know the baddie and this person's the goodie because what really needs to be done is sort out what everybody's going to do tomorrow and all the days after that so a lot of the time the job is kind of part therapist and part saying that's fine but we need to focus on the money because I, I mean a growth area at the moment is arguments about estates which is which is sad you know brothers and sisters falling out over estates once their parents pass away family members falling out because there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of emotion involved and the two kind of give rise to a a, you know grounds for enthusiasm for litigation but our goal should be to try and take that out and to keep people focused on the practicalities the court would look at the evidence presented and try to go for a just decision. So it will not probably appease both parties. It should not upset both parties, depending, of course, on their expectations. But it will be somewhere in the middle. So it's never, no one is ever going to be happy. And hopefully, as long as people have been reasonable in the process and with their reasons to bring proceedings... They should not be absolutely surprised with the decision. Well, that's what people often say, is that nobody's going to be happy here except the lawyers, because we get paid <laughs> whatever happens. Yeah, I mean, where, where if you do take something through to court, then you should, unless you've been entirely unrealistic, you should kind of expect an outcome where neither party is entirely satisfied. It's very, very rare that you get absolutely everything you want and then also get all of your legal costs paid. And also, even if you do get absolutely everything you want at court and get all of your legal costs paid, you'll still have had to have spent quite a lot of time and energy on the court process, which is something that I don't think a lot of people budget for. I'm going to move to the next point, and that's fault. Often people sue each other because they feel you you are at fault. I am right and you're wrong. And... I'm not going to explore this, but recently there's been a change in English law that Daniel knows a lot about. Until very recently, England was one of the last jurisdictions not to accept that marriages can break down without having to prove that one of the parties is the baddie and the other one is the goodie. And Daniel knows a lot more about this, so I think I'm just going to put a pound in him <laughs> and the jukebox will start now. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to say he knows a lot more because, I mean, I know what we ought to know. The um, no-fault divorce was originally made law in 1996, but the government then kind of got cold feet at the last minute, probably something to do with there having been an election. So it's been on the books since 1996, it should never have been brought into effect. 
And then in 2020, they decided, no, we will actually get on with this. It was a long process to get it onto the books, but they it, it became law in 2020. And then, as we all know, it's now coming up to April 2022, and the government is finally... I think they set themselves a date of 6th of April 2022 for when no-fault divorce will become a reality, so that they would then have to put all the arrangements in place in a kind of, like, essay crisis. So last week, they finally started making plans, but... Basically, the, the law in, on divorce in this country was set up, uh, we were still relying on laws from 1973, and still are up until um, April, where in order for the, a marriage to be ended by the court, there must be one of five facts proved. Each of those five facts, well, four of those five facts that one party has to blame the other, um, and the other, the final one is that the parties have been separated for at least two years, and they... Um, and they both formally consent, you don't want to be married, or you have to say um, they've behaved unreasonably and I don't want to be married to them and it's all their fault and it's, um, you know, they've, they've not been very good. But you don't have to do that anymore. You won't have to do that from April. You still do at the moment. Um, what we've, what's been done for a long time is that parties have gone on the basis of one part of unreasonable behaviour and you've had to have this conversation in advance of saying, look, this is not because we want to play a blame game. This is not because we want to get in a long argument. But we have to play the we, blame We game. have to because the law is still set up by the 1973 government who obviously had a slightly more moralistic view of marriage. But why don't we just say some things about behaviour and then we can all kind of get on with our lives? So why don't we just say some bad things about the other, <laughs> about the husband or the wife? Yeah. And then that will get us through the judgment. This April, 6th of April, the process is going to be amended. So instead of saying, I wish to get divorced, and the reason that I wish to get divorced is because of all of these terrible things that my spouse did, or because we've been separated for many, many years, you will just be able to say, I wish to get divorced, here are the forms that I've filled in, I've ticked the box, and we now wish to get divorced. The court will then start that process. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's going to make divorces a lot simpler... It's going to make them less contentious. It's, um, it might even reduce costs. We're going to move on. Otherwise, as I said, it's like a jukebox. You put a pound <laughs> in and you can't stop, Daniel. Right, so I think we will go back to the process of actual court proceedings. So what would one want to think of when deciding whether to issue proceedings? First of all, we said take all emotional elements out of it, put it in an Excel spreadsheet, if you like, and say, this is my best scenario, this is the worst scenario. I am probably not going to get any of those. And adding the emotional element in it, you're probably more likely to disregard the worst case scenario. So where do I sit in the middle? How do you measure it, Daniel, when you advise clients? What would be the best outcome if I managed to prove all of the things which I say are true? What would be the worst outcome if I was not able to prove any of the things which I say are true? And then let's immediately start the early process of saying, like, what evidence do we have? Because I find that's the useful role that a solicitor can play in that first stage. You can say to the client, like, I don't know this case. I didn't know your employer or your business partner or whatever. I don't 
know the, the, the... I don't have any personal knowledge of the details. So what evidence is there? Because what I can see proved by the evidence is probably what a judge is going to see proved by the evidence. And it's kind of not much use if you say, me and my brother definitely agreed that we would split the profit 70-30 or whatever, if there's no evidence whatsoever. And in fact, all of the facts seem to present something different. And that's kind of the early stage of doing that straight off the bat is where something you can be quite useful as the solicitor and saying this is the dispassionate pair of eyes here, this is the dispassionate, like, if I'm looking at this, I can see probably this is what, like, how a judge is also going to look at it. And then the second thing to think is, like, which, again, I think is perhaps the useful first thing for a solicitor to think is, what are they going to be the points of disagreement here? Because you can kind of differentiate the court cases into two types very very broadly in a thing that I do and I don't know if anyone else does this but like you've got types where nobody's really disagreeing on the kind of the, the legal principles and it's just an argument about money and those shouldn't really go to court if one person is saying 20% and one person is saying 40% you ought to be able to negotiate some sort of settlement and then you've got the other the second type where it's like there's a binary issue here there's something which is so it's so it's like well, the first time of kind of sliding scale cases where do we come on this sliding scale and you ought to be able to try and negotiate something the second type is a binary issue and it's like if the contract is valid then it's a million pounds and if the contract is invalid then it's only 20 pounds or something or nothing or nothing or and it's these sort of those are the issues where you kind of see them and you're like almost immediately I think we're going to need to mm. go a bit further down the it's, line it's um, almost always about money court claims are from 95%, probably even more, about money. And I think there's some truth in saying that court uh, claims, if you are to issue proceedings, it could be seen as an investment you're making that you're willing to lose. Litigation risk is something that you've always got to factor in. And people are surprised by that sometimes. Like, they'll come in and they'll say, but this is definitely, a, this is a brilliant case, you know. My, we, we, my, it's clear from the documents, and I'm 100% sure on that. And on that basis, I'm going to borrow the money to fund it. And you say there's always a risk in litigation. There's always a risk that somebody else is going to come up with uh, the other document that you've forgotten about that disproves it, or that the judge just isn't going for it. You have a bad day in the witness evidence and the judge just decides he doesn't like your evidence. There's always a risk. And it is a bit of a risky investment. You see that with the amounts of interest that the loan providers want to charge on litigation. They don't do that because it's a safe bet. They do that because it's a risky investment. So, something to take away from this point is to evaluate the worst and best case scenario and see if the worst case scenario still applies, whether it's worth doing or not. So going back to the other thing which is so important in the litigation process, and that's the that's following the process. Because sometimes you may have a good case and it all fails because you have not done the things right. The way to see why the process is in place is to make sure that you prove prove to the court that you are serious either about claiming or defending or serious and bothered to do what the court asks you to do yeah well it's like i said a minute ago about the evidence point like you can know for an absolute fact 
that you're right and that your employer or business partner or contract partner or whatever is wrong. You can know that 100% certain, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is what evidence you can get before the court. So that means A, getting the evidence together, proving it to the court, and B, getting the court to look at that evidence. And if you mess around with the procedures and you don't follow the processes, the judges can be very strict and can say, I'm not, I'm not interested in what you say now is fair. What I'm interested in is the evidence that you've given to me. I can't make a decision based on the fact that what you reckon. You need to be serious about what you're claiming. Yeah. One thing we should mention is that if I lose, the judge... And there's a cost hearing may say, well, not only you've lost, but you may need to pay the other side's legal costs. And that could be thousands. Thousands. I mean, costs and legal costs at the end of proceedings is a, is a whole lecture that, you know, in itself. And it's, there's all sorts of ins and outs, and there's people who t- specialise just in the costs of proceedings. And is it, I've got a mate who's a lawyer, a litigation lawyer in Atlanta in the States, and she was horrified that like the idea of costs of proceedings could take up a whole area of practice. She said, like, everyone just pays their lawyer's costs, and that's just what you do, and that's the end of it. You don't have to then have a long argument, like a second court case about it. But yeah, it's something to bear in mind on any set of proceed, anything that you do in court that you might end up having to pay the other side's legal costs, and that could be a really substantial amount of money. One thing which Daniel and I talked about before starting today's podcast was the actual nature of proceedings and when they can be used and when they're appropriate to be used. And you said always as the last resort, an absolute last resort. I can't remember who it was, some like wise political philosopher said that the only circumstances in which war is appropriate is in uh, an unacceptable asymmetry of information. Because it's that you, you don't go into battle unless both sides think that there's a reasonable chance that they're going to win, and one of them must be wrong. If you go into battle in court, then there is a chance that you could lose, uh, regardless of how strong your case might be. Sometimes you don't get given the option, and sometimes you know you can be up against somebody who's very, very unreasonable. But like, as soon as you go into court, there's risk, and as soon as you go into court, there's going to be costs that you're not going to be able to get back. Yes, so I suppose the, the message would be to sort out disagreements, disputes, before going to court, because... If you can do that without having to issue court proceedings, you will save yourself aggravation, costs on lawyers, and you may not end up with a better result. You may end up angrier. As also, time and energy. The courts are horrendously underfunded at the moment. It can be months before you get a hearing. When you do, it gets cancelled the day before, and then it's months until you get another hearing. The courts, the same seats in Kingston that were county court that were knackered when I first went there in like 2011 and were covered in that black and yellow tape because all of the cushions were ripped off, are still covered in tape like 11 years down the line. Because one thing that you won't ever get back from a court proceedings is the, the energy that you've got to spend on it. So you're saying 
Not only it'll take a long time, it'll take a lot out of you emotionally. Emotionally, and if they ever do get the call, and financially, and financially, um, yeah, it's going to be hard. But Daniel is a litigator; he does this for a living. I mean, sometimes you have no option. It takes two to tango, and it also sometimes takes two to stop tangoing. I I can't imagine a scenario in which that'd be true. If two people had started tangoing, one of them would be able to unilaterally end the tango. But in court proceedings, it does often take two to stop tangoing. So it's not a good metaphor. Forget I said it. I um, think I'm on this <laughs> dancing <laughs> note, bombshell, we should end today's podcast. I have been Jakob Gotan. I've been Daniel Flynn. Thank you.